Amen. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Thomas Hainsworth. Does that name ring a bell for anyone? Thomas Hainsworth. It's been a couple years. Uh, back in 2011, uh, this was a big deal in Virginia, but on December 6th of that year, the Washington Post ran the following story. So listen to what the, the newspaper reported. Virginia appeals court declared Thomas Hainsworth an innocent man Tuesday, clearing his name and acknowledging that he spent 27 years behind bars for rapes he did not commit. It is the first time that the state has issued a writ of actual innocence in a rape case without the certainty of DNA evidence. Hainsworth, now 46, was supported by Attorney General Ken Cuccinelli and two state prosecutors, all of whom concluded that he was mistakenly identified by a rape victim as he walked to a Richmond market for sweet potatoes and bread one February afternoon in 1984. It's a blessing, Hainsworth said, as he stood with his attorneys in Cuccinelli, there are a lot of people behind the scenes who believed in me. 27 years, and I never gave up. I kept pushing. I ain't give up hope. I'm very happy. Me and my family can finally put this behind us, and I can go on with my life, and I can finally vote. It's a privilege, you know. As Cuccinelli, who had hired Hainsworth to work in his mailroom, I loved that, announced the ruling in an emotional news conference, dozens of his staff members broke into applause and gave Hainsworth a standing ovation. An attorney general's job is not convictions when it comes to law enforcement. It's justice, Cuccinelli said. That's profound. Today, we got justice. I've never experienced the pure joy of today's outcome. I'm just so happy, Hainsworth said, You want your name restored. You want to prove to them that they made a mistake. I don't think that identifying the source of our suffering is ever an easy enterprise. What do I mean by that? Well, there are days you wake up and and life just feels hard and overwhelming. And you haven't the foggiest notion why. (laughs) It just does. You know, there are other situations where where humility forces us, if we're going to be humble, to acknowledge that part or all of our suffering is due to the presence of sin in our lives. But there are other situations, friends, like the one I read, where tremendous sorrow comes our way in the form of oppression or persecution. It's unjust, and it's a situation where, as far as we know, the source of our suffering lies outside of us. Lies outside of us. So we've walked in righteousness, so we think we fought for holiness as best as we know how our moral integrity is intact. And yet, we're suffering. I think sometimes that, that external oppression or persecution is impersonal. So you take Hainsworth's case, what I just read, right? He suffered at the hands of what? An unjust social system, a structure, a legal system that failed to render the right verdict for 27 years. And I, can't, I can't imagine that. I mean, every day, just sitting there, longing for your name to be restored. So sometimes it's impersonal. But sometimes external oppression or, or persecution is deeply personal. So you think of situations like this, you know, an angry friend or relative won't stop slandering you. They're, they're, they're destroying your personal integrity in the eyes of anyone who will listen or read their Facebook post. Or maybe a bitter spouse takes you to court 
they're just lodging all manner of, of unjust accusations and charges against you, demanding a divorce. Or maybe you have a coworker that that smugly points out every last honest mistake you've ever made in your annual review. Or maybe your oppression or persecution is, is far more sinister. Maybe you've experienced years of, of sexual or physical abuse. I don't think I have to convince any of you that, that whether the perceived source of oppression, persecution coming from outside of you, whether it's impersonal or personal, bottom line, it's tremendously painful. And, and that really is the situation confronting David in Psalm 17, which makes it very different, it's important to note, from Psalm 6 that Josh preached last Sunday. So it's a different sort of lament because in Psalm 6, David recognized that his suffering was an expression of what? The Lord's discipline. The Lord's rebuke. He was suffering in part because of his own sin, the consequences of his own sin. But in Psalm 17, David argues the exact opposite. He says, Lord, I'm not guilty. In this situation, as far as I can tell, I haven't sinned. I've held on to my integrity. And yet I'm suffering at the hands of wicked men. So, so we rightly pray Psalm 17. We rightly pray this psalm when we're experiencing, listen, oppression or persecution despite our moral integrity. And I think we really need God's help to know how to lament our sorrows to the Lord in those situations. Because in my experience, it's this kind of situation where we're most tempted to get angry at God. As Josh warned us last Sunday. Why, why do I say that? Well, when I know, to the degree we can ever know, that at least part of the reason I'm suffering is because I've done something wrong. That happens. Okay, not all the time, but sometimes. Okay, when I know that, it's harder for me to cry foul to the Lord. Now, it's not, a, not impossible. I can still find plenty of ways to do that and indict him nonetheless. But it's a little harder to cry foul if I look at my life and say, you know what? In part, at least, I'm experiencing this suffering because I sinned. But when as far as I can tell, like David in this psalm, I've done absolutely nothing wrong. And yet I'm still getting attacked and maligned. It gets really hard to not shake my fist at God and say, I don't deserve this. I've done nothing wrong. I've done everything right. How dare you let this happen to me? That's anger, friends. That's anger. And it's understandable but it's sinful. And there's a way of lamenting our sorrow, a way of talking to God and relating with God as a man or woman of integrity in the midst of persecution and pain that can bring peace in the midst of our pain. There's a way of talking to God and relating with God when we're suffering innocently Oppression, persecution that can bring peace in the midst of our pain. And it's a song of lament that's guided by a precious promise that I see running all throughout the entire chapter that is Psalm 17. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you the precious promise and then we're going to see how this works out in David's life, okay? Here's, here's the precious promise. Listen carefully to this. The whole point of Psalm 17, this undercurrent that is guiding the way like a stream of water, David talks to God and relates with God in the midst of suffering and oppression coming at him, is this. Here's the promise. A man of integrity who looks to the Lord for vindication will be satisfied. A man of integrity, a woman of integrity, who looks to the Lord for vindication in the midst of their oppression, their persecution, that man or woman will 
be satisfied. So how does that guide the way we talk to God and relate with God when we're suffering despite our innocence? I use those words, talk to God and relate with God, intentionally. I'm going to use them over and over again in this series from the Songs of Lament for this reason. Change is always relational. You will not change, you will not learn how to glorify God with your pain or worship him with your suffering to the degree you think of these psalms as a repository of theological data points. What do I mean by that? Psalm 17 verse 3 gives me the following fact. Psalm 17 verse 10 gives me the following fact. If I insert these facts into my worldview, I will change. No, you won't. (laughs) No, you won't. We only change to the degree the way we talk to and relate with God begins to change. Change is relational. So when I say that this promise guides the way that David talks to God, relates with God, that's how we want to be reading the Psalms. They are a guide for how we need to talk with God and relate with God. So don't stand afar from Psalm 17 and say, hmm, I wonder what abstract truth this teaches me about the Lord. No. In a sense, let David pull you into the psalm and teach you how to talk with God and teach you how to relate with God. So what's the promise? What's going to guide us here? A man of integrity who looks to the Lord for vindication will be satisfied. And that guides us in at least three ways in this psalm. Three points this morning. First, from verses 1 to 5, a man of integrity rests in God's evaluation. Man of integrity, rest in God's evaluation. So, so a biblical lament, Psalm 17 is certainly that, starts with crying out to the Lord, right? We've heard that every Sunday in this series. And David does that in verse 1 by asking God to hear, attend, and give ear. Why? Because his cause is just and his lips are free from deceit. So what's he doing here? Well, it's the same thing we saw back in Psalm 5. He's appealing to God on the basis of God's justice. So he's saying, Lord, I know you to be a God of justice. Therefore, I'm asking you to listen to me because my cause is just and my request, what I'm speaking to you, is fair. So what's his request? Look at verse 2. He wants God to vindicate him. What's he say? From your presence, let my vindication come. Now, that's a big word. That's a lots of points scrabble word, vindication. We don't use that word very often. So it basically means to demonstrate or prove, demonstrate or prove that someone is in the right based on some accepted standard of right and wrong. That's what vindication is. It means to prove or demonstrate, show that someone is in the right. So when Thomas Hainsworth, back to that story I read, when he received a writ of innocence, he was what? He was vindicated in the sense that the Virginia Court of Appeals confirmed his moral integrity in the eyes of the Code of Virginia. He was vindicated. Okay, well, in verse 2, David pleads with God to confirm his own moral integrity in the eyes of who? Let your eyes behold the right. The eyes of God. The eyes of God. Now, we don't know for sure why, exactly why David needs vindication, but if you look at verses 10 to 12, which we'll look at more closely soon, They suggest that he was experiencing some combination of false accusations and evil oppression. But the question I want us to ask here is, why does David need God to vindicate him? Well, because he knows, friends, that it's ultimately God's evaluation of his life that matters. He knows that. Why? Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, listen, according to what they had done. Not one of us in this room will escape that. 
every one of us is accountable to God. And that, that tells us this, that, that told David something in every situation. And especially in a situation where you're suffering despite your innocence. Hear this, friends. It is God's evaluation of you that matters most. It's God's evaluation of you. All other assessments, all other verdicts, all other human, external, and internal evaluations pale in comparison to the word of the Lord. We have to see this. We have to rest in this evaluation. In the midst of his oppression, in the midst of his persecution, God God what? Look at verse 3. What did he do for David? He tried his heart. Translation, he led him in self-examination and evaluation as he lay on his bed at night. He tested him. And thus far, according to what we read in verse 4, God had brought no conviction of sin to bear in David's heart. At least this concerned his actions in this particular situation. Isn't that remarkable? Lord, test me. Lord, evaluate me. And God's doing it. And he's bringing no immediate conviction of sin in this situation. Now think about that. Okay? We know from other Psalms that David, categorically, was far from sinless. Right? We know that. But in this particular situation, he knew he was innocent in the eyes of God. Back to verse 3. You have tried me. You have tested me. You've tried me. You've tested me, and you will what? You will find nothing. Find nothing. Why not? Because the Holy Spirit just took control of David's mouth and made him automatically recite scripture all day? (laughs) I don't think so. No, because David willed and determined not to disobey the Lord. Notice, either in the words he spoke, I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress, or the actions he took. I have avoided the ways of the violent. I have not disobeyed you, Lord, as far as I know, in the words that I've spoken and the actions I've taken. Now, here's the critical question. Why is that not the height of arrogance? Maybe you felt that tension. (laughs) I'm getting a little uncomfortable here. My good Reformed theology, we're all sinners who need a Savior's kicking in, and I'm saying, "Eh, I don't know about that. Maybe I'll just step back from David in case he gets the boom. (laughs) Why is that not arrogant? How, How could David know that? How did he know he was innocent? Here's why that question, how did he know that, is so important, okay? Every one of us naturally believes in the midst of any sort of relational suffering, especially when we feel oppressed or attacked, that we're in the right and everyone else is in the wrong. Right? Correct. That's automatic. It's it's been that way from the very beginning. It's not my fault. It's the woman you gave me. She made me do it. What does that reveal? All it reveals is that we are hardwired to function as our own moral authority. Determining for ourselves what is right and wrong. And by the way, what is right and wrong in our own eyes has a very strange way of always lining up with whatever we're currently doing. Have you noticed that? Talking with your spouse you're explaining and defending your actions. And what is categorically right and wrong is a strange way of always lining up with whatever you're currently doing and they're not. That's our default. So how do we know David's not arrogantly seizing the moral high ground here by playing the, check this out, God knows I'm right, (laughs) card. How do we know he's not doing that? Well, the key is found in verse 4. Look at verse 4. It's so important to slow down here, church. With regard to the works of man, when it comes to evaluating my actions, what I've done, listen, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the way of the violent. 
by the word of your lips. In other words, David knew he was innocent. He was confident in his moral integrity because he had allowed the spirit of God to use the word of God to evaluate his heart. That's why he could know that. David wasn't claiming to be his own moral authority. You can't do that with this song. He looked to the word of God as his moral authority, and he allowed God to evaluate himself in the objective light of Scripture. So please hear this. He doesn't say, I know I've done what's right because it feels right to me, and my best friend said it was okay. He doesn't do that. He says, I know I've done what's right. I know I've walked in moral integrity because so far as I can tell, I've done everything that God commands me to do and nothing he says don't do in his word in this particular situation. That's how he's talking to God. And that didn't make him all puffed up with pride. It didn't. It left him humble and grateful because he knew that it was only because of the word of God, the, the words of your lips, that he had been able to hold fast to God's path. Okay, So the, the implicit assumption on David's part in verses 4 and 5 is that were it not for the gracious gift of the word, he would have no moral integrity. Because he would have no way of knowing how God would have him respond in the midst of his persecution and oppression. So what's the application? Well, for starters, it's this. Take care, friend. Take care that your claims of innocence in the midst of your oppression or persecution are not grounded in what you think of yourself or the courtroom of your personal opinion. Take care that you are focused on the courtroom of God and his evaluation of you. In the mirror of his word, for that is what determines guilt or innocence. Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you are suffering, one of the wisest things you can do, especially in the midst of external persecution and oppression, is allow God to examine your heart by faithfully meditating on the pages of his word. Wisest things you can do. And as you do that, if the Lord doesn't bring any conviction of sin concerning your actions in a particular situation, don't assume you're missing something. I'll say that again. If the Lord doesn't bring conviction of sin in a particular situation, Don't assume you're missing something. Why do I say that? Because God is quite adept at pointing out every plank in your eye that exists. And if there's not a plank in your eye, he's not going to point one out. And if he doesn't, if as far as you can tell, you've, you've walked in integrity, then rest in God's evaluation of your innocence. God God hasn't given us his word, church, so we can be perpetually doubtful about our ethical integrity. That's not the point of his word, okay? He's given us his word so that we could know what is right, know what is wrong, and so when by his grace we choose what is right, we can rest in the assurance that we are actually walking in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. Do you realize God wants you to know that? He wants you to be comforted by that, strengthened in that. The point of this word is not just every time I open it, oh, not measuring up again. Well, if he wants to convict you, let him do it. He's quite good at it. But if he doesn't bring conviction of sin, then thank the Lord that in light of his word, praise be to you, God. Through your guidance, you have helped me walk in integrity in this situation. There's strength in that, friends, that comes from the Lord, and it's humble. It's not arrogant because it's the word that is doing the evaluating. Not yourself, not David. You know, some of the most difficult experiences of suffering in my short life have come in the form of situations where some people are convinced I'm right, some people are convinced I'm wrong. And it feels impossibly difficult to know 
what is actually right or actually wrong, let alone whether what I'm currently doing is right or wrong. It's a perpetual challenge of leadership. And the only thing that's kept me sane in those moments is a promise and assurance from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that I want to read to you. It says this, Apostle Paul, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Church, that is a bulwark for the soul. In oppression and persecution, where you are surrounded by all manner of voices and opinions about who you are and the condition of your heart and the morality of your life, the voice we need the most is the voice of God. So remember the promise. Remember the promise. A man of integrity who looks to the Lord for vindication will be satisfied. So allowing that promise to guide the way that we talk to God, relate with God in the midst of Oppression coming from the outside, that guidance starts with allowing the word of God to determine whether or not we're walking in integrity. And when God's evaluation confirms our innocence, what do we do? Like David, we humbly rest in God's evaluation and we ask him to vindicate us accordingly. Vindicate me accordingly. Why do we do that? Because the Lord's a God of justice. And when we know, like David knew, that our our cause is just, we can be confident, as David was, that God will deliver us. 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to who? Those whose heart is blameless toward him. So check this out. David didn't respond in the midst of his oppression by quietly saying, well, at least God knows I'm innocent. He didn't do that. He he took comfort in God's confirmation of his integrity and he pled with God to vindicate him accordingly. Knowing that when God intervened, when God vindicated the righteousness of his cause, it would not be to the glory of David's integrity, but to the glory of the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 5, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. I gave him courage. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. What's the first point from Psalm 17? A man of integrity, he rests in God's evaluation. He rests in God's evaluation. Church, Rest in God's evaluation. Do not presume that if you are experiencing oppression or suffering, something must be wrong with you. That's a yoke that is not from God. That's from the evil one. God is quite able to convict you if you need to be convicted. But if he's not, don't presume all the voices are right. Rest in God's evaluation. Point two. Picking up here in verse 6. A man of integrity. What's he doing in the midst of oppression? A man of integrity. Rest in God's evaluation. Second, he cries out for God's deliverance. So we've already started to see that in verse 5. He rests in God's evaluation. He cries out for God's deliverance. So in verses 6 to 9, David resumes a prayer that he began in verse 2. What was that prayer? God, vindicate my innocence. I think if we're going to appreciate the significance of David's cry for help, we we need to first feel the weight of his oppression. Okay, so so look for a moment with me at verse 10. Exactly how are these enemies oppressing him? Look at verse 10. Well, for starters, they refuse to show compassion. They speak proudly and arrogantly. Look at verse 11. They have surrounded our steps. Just think about that. Have you ever experienced that? 
Have you ever felt like no matter where you go physically or mentally, they're waiting for you? Waiting to accuse you. Waiting to oppress you. Waiting, waiting to harm you. That, that's what life was like for David. He, he takes a step this way and his enemies are there. He takes a step that way and his enemies are there. They, they haven't just surrounded David. They've surrounded his steps. Wherever he goes, where, no matter how he tries to get away from oppression, it's waiting for him. That's the picture here. And notice he's not alone. Verse 11, they have now surrounded our steps. So other men and women of integrity are, are suffering too, experiencing the same sort of oppression. But, but in this case, church, unlike what Thomas Hainsworth seemed to experience, David's oppression isn't accidental. It's not a mistake. It's deliberate. It's intentional. It's malicious. How do we know that? Verse 12, he, the enemy, is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in the ambush. I mean, these word pictures are so helpful. It's, it's like he, he gets it, right? There are situations in life where the oppression that is coming at you from the outside, despite your, your innocence, it's just lurking for you. And no matter where you go, no matter what choices you make, no matter how many emails you write, texts you send, meetings you have, wherever you go, you never know when oppression is just going <laughs> to jump you. It's what his life is like. There's nothing sanitized about the biblical descriptions of oppression and suffering. Do you realize that? There's nothing sanitized. It's not as though God enters the picture and the reality of pain just gets winged and flies away and it's all kumbaya. <laughs> no! The Bible is so specific about the reality of pain and sorrow, which gives us confidence to do what? It gives us confidence to follow David's lead as he talks to God and relates with God in the midst of his pain and sorrow. So verses 10 to 12 aren't a throwaway. They're God's way of reminding us, listen, I get oppression. I get it. I know what it feels like. There's nothing sanitized here. So, so how does David ask God to vindicate him? Okay, look at verse 6. Back to his request. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. It's the same attitude we saw back in verse 2. From your presence, let my vindication come. Friends, in the midst of our suffering and oppression, there is an enormous temptation to look anywhere and everywhere but God for our vindication. What do I mean by that? Well, examples. We look to ourselves for vindication. Okay, we endlessly, this is my specialty, endlessly rehearse the reasons why they're wrong and we're right in all the corners of our mind. Okay, we, we can look to other people for vindication. We share our story with all who will listen, hoping that at some point their expressions of pity will make us feel better. Well, they don't. We can even look to the person or people who hurt us for vindication. We, we can allow a humble desire for their repentance to become a demand to God that he bring them groveling back to our feet. And the answer to all of those troubles and a thousand more is the same church. Friend, stop looking to a human being for the vindication that only God can give you. Don't do that. You'll never succeed in being a refuge for your own soul. Okay, other people will never succeed in being a refuge for your own soul. Don't ask them to do that for you. Only God can be a refuge for your soul. Only God. And God is eager to do that because he's a God who what? Look at verse 7. Who delights to show, wondrously show, his steadfast covenant love toward those who seek refuge from their adversaries at his right hand. Do not allow the fact that your own thoughts feel closer and the opinions of other people feel 
nearer and more relevant and more influential in the current emotional condition of your heart and mind to cause you to think that in those things lies your peace. It does not, friend. Your vindication comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. So how do we do that? Real practically, how does a man or woman of integrity look to the Lord for deliverance? Two ways, okay? Very specific, two ways. Working through verses six to nine here, okay? Two ways. First, we ask God to protect and keep us. Lord, protect and keep me. So look at these images in verses eight and nine. Okay, this is powerful. Keep me as the apple of your eye. What's David saying? God, don't let me out of your sight. Watch over me. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. What's David saying? Protect me, Lord. I'm like a young bird. I can't protect myself. The image as I was meditating on this this week is when my two-year-old is terrified. He wants to run into my arms and bury his head under my shoulder. Once he's there, everything around him may be unchanged, but he's okay. Because he's, he's covered by daddy. It's what the Lord wants to be for us, friends. I, I love how these images of the apple of his eye, sheltered by his wings, they're brought together in Deuteronomy 32. Listen how the Lord speaks of Israel, his love for his people. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up on its pinions. If you didn't notice it, David is crying out to the Lord for deliverance by essentially asking God to do for him everything his enemies are not. Okay, so check this out. What have his enemies, have, what have his enemies done? Lord, they've closed their heart to pity. They refuse to relent. So what's he, what's he ask God to do? Wondrously show me your steadfast love. You are what they're not, okay? Lord, they've surrounded me on every side. I can't seem to get away. So what's he ask God to do? Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Lord, their eyes are searching for a way to cast me to the ground. So what's he ask God to do? Keep me, Lord, as the apple of your eye. What's the point? The whole reason that David's pleas for deliverance line up exactly with the nature of his troubles is proof that there's nothing generic about the salvation of the Lord. It's as specific as our troubles. And David asked God to save him accordingly. So so we look to the Lord for deliverance, first by asking the Lord to protect and keep us. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing, okay? We look to the Lord for deliverance by asking God to subdue and confront our enemies. Two things, we ask him to protect and keep us. We ask God to subdue and confront our enemies. Look at verse 13. Arise, O Lord. I mean, notice the boldness here. Get up, Lord. Confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul by your sword. Do you realize there is a wealth of comfort to be found in knowing that God isn't just for the righteous. He's against the wicked. He's for the righteous, and in fact, because he's for the righteous, therefore, he is against the wicked. He's not a, a doting grandpa who drives around dropping off gifts for his favorite grandchildren, okay? He's a warrior king. He's God. He's got a voice way louder than mine. When he speaks, it happens. He's a defender and and judge. He's sovereign. And he seeks out and destroys those who harm and oppress his people. David knows that the sword of God isn't just for holding off his enemies. It's for taking them out. He knows that. It's no less true today, church. And you know, David doesn't say exactly how he wants God to do those things. Did you notice that? 
It's not like David came to God with a four-step enemy destruction plan. You know, I thought through it, Lord, and the perfection of my wisdom, this would be really the best way to subdue and take out those people. I mean, my assumption is he's just so overwhelmed with sorrow, the best he can get out is, Lord, confront them, subdue them. I don't even know what else to ask you to do. I'm so confused. But would you deliver my soul by your sword? That's what he's praying. But that's okay because God doesn't need marching orders. He knows how to confront the wicked. He knows how to subdue our enemies. And he has unlimited resources at his disposal to do that for you and me, friend. All he wants us to do is have a heart that's willing to trust him. So, Review, looking to God for deliverance. We do that by asking God to protect and keep us, by asking God to confront and subdue our enemies. Now, I want to make a very important note here. He's thinking about the best place to do this in this series, and I think the moment is here. Listen carefully. Looking to God for deliverance in the midst of oppression doesn't mean that the only biblical response to oppression is prayer. It doesn't mean that. Especially when the oppression we are experiencing is physical or a violation of the laws of the land. Okay, in those situations, seeking refuge in God means, includes, looking to the authorities that God has established as his chosen means of working out his protecting, delivering, keeping power in our life. What do I mean by that? I mean that seeking refuge from God doesn't mean we never call the police or hire a lawyer or get a protective order. Okay, it means that even when wisdom dictates that we, we take practical advantage of a means of grace, we do it how? We take practical advantage of that means of grace with our hope firmly fixed in the God of grace, not in the practical means. So there's a way of calling the police that seeks refuge in the police. And then there's a way of calling the police that seeks refuge in God. Does that make sense? That's part of God's answer to prayers like this. Don't super spiritualize it. Okay, so in the midst of innocent suffering and oppression, a man of integrity does what? He rests in God's evaluation. He cries out for God's deliverance. And here's the last point. We'll end with this. A man of integrity will be satisfied with God's presence. He rests in God's evaluation. He cries out for God's deliverance. And that he knows he will be satisfied with God's presence. Verses 14 and 15. Let's, let's be honest here. Let's just be honest, okay? There are countless situations, countless situations throughout the history of the church and no doubt the history of your life where Christians have experienced severe oppression, maintained their moral integrity in the midst of it, cried out to the Lord for deliverance, and it seems as though heaven is silent. Just silent. like you pray, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. And nothing happens. Nothing changes. The wicked continue to prosper and the righteous continue to suffer. Ultimately, I don't know what to do with that entirely. But I do know this. When that happens in your life, friend, or in the life of someone that you dearly love, you and I have a choice to make. You can conclude, you can conclude that God is not the Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at his right hand. And you can sink into the mire of unbelief and bitterness. You can do that. 
Or you can do what David did and humbly acknowledge that God's ways are higher than our ways. Really, is that simple. Our, this is the whole point of verses 14 and 15, okay? Our timeline is way too short. Our time frame is too small. Our creator is too jealous for his glory to limit his deliverance to the narrow confines of human wisdom. He's too jealous for his glory, let alone limit his deliverance to the passing moment that is our existence in this world. So look at verse 14. What does David remember about the men of the world who are oppressing and attacking him? Maybe this takes you by surprise. Of all the things he recalls, they are those whose, what? Whose portion is in this life. Why is that? Because the people oppressing him are convinced that this life is all there is. Now, it's easy to shake your finger at that as a Christian and say, ha, 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 I know better than that. But friends, we so often do exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. How do we do that? Well, we cry out for justice, and when it's delayed for a week or a year or 80 years, we despair of ever being vindicated. Why should I keep trusting you to vindicate me, God, when the wife who left me is making six figures and I'm broke? Why should I keep trusting you to vindicate me, God, when the man who raped me never got caught? Why should I keep trusting you to vindicate me when the people who refuse to obey your commands seem to have it all, all the time, and I'm just struggling to make ends meet? I've tried to do what's right. I've obeyed your word. I thought I took up my cross and followed you. So why do the wicked continue to prosper and the righteous suffer? It's it's agonizing. I've sat with many people who have looked me in the eyes and said, Matthew, if everything you're saying is true, I just don't get it. How can God be just? Given my life. It's an understandable question. But please hear this. The very fact that we ask such a question reveals that we have bought into the lie that this life is all there is. Do you realize that? The very fact that we ask the question reveals that we too have bought into the lie that this 80 years is all there is. And that the reward and vindication that matters most must be found in this present world. That is so easy to buy into. Brothers and sisters, I'm here today to tell you that it's not. It's just not. What, what is the ultimate of a man or woman who walks in integrity. What what singular experience will confirm more than any other that our suffering was not in vain? What reward will vindicate the choice we made to follow Jesus in the midst of severe oppression? Look at verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake, when I awake, I haven't awakened yet, because I haven't died yet, but when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Thank you. Friends, seeing the beauty 
and glory of the Lord is our ultimate vindication because it is the exclusive reward of those who walk in integrity. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they and only they shall what? See God. See God. So, so what do we do? We pray, save us, O Lord. Right? Arise, subdue our enemies, deliver me for the sake of your steadfast love. But Father, even if I die before I see your salvation, this I know. On that day, I'm going to get to see your face. Christian, when that happens, you won't just be glad or thankful. You'll be satisfied. You'll know that you didn't walk the path of righteousness in vain because there's no greater glory, no greater reward, no higher vindication than being invited and welcomed to behold the face of God. The satisfaction of the wicked, people oppressing you, Their satisfaction is in what is temporal and temporary. If you're in Christ, Jesus is your Savior, the satisfaction, vindication of the righteous, those who are walking in holiness because that's what it means to be a Christian, that vindication is eternal and everlasting. But don't reduce that to some vague idea that in the end, it'll just all make sense. The comfort is more specific than that. God says, faithful child toiling in the midst of oppression. He says this to you. You're almost home. I'm waiting for you. And when you see me, you will be satisfied. Friend, if you are experiencing oppression right now as a man or woman of integrity, know this that the vindication your soul is aching and longing for, God will give you on the day you see his face. And did you notice that's not in this life? Now, sometimes it happens in this life, but we know we're going to be satisfied on that day. So suffering saint, don't set your hope on being vindicated here and now. Set your hope on seeing the face of God in life to come because that will be the ultimate proof that you did not run this race in vain. Okay? A man of integrity who looks to the Lord for vindication will be satisfied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I... Thank you that your word is true. That you are the one who vindicates. And I pray for grace right now, along with my brothers and sisters, to turn our forgetful eyes away from this present life, which is so riddled with injustice and oppression in many forms. And to trust and rest in the confidence that it's your evaluation that matters and that those who walk in integrity and cry out to you for deliverance will be satisfied. Lord, would that assurance fill the hearts of every genuine Christian in this room right now, I pray. Do that as we sing this song. Amen.